What's going on, everybody? This is Colin with... Hey, guys, it's Elliot. Good deal. So Steve we are Lovelace. here with Steve Lovelace here. So uh, Steve is a special guest here that uh, we got connected through uh, a mutual friend here. But uh, welcome to the show, Steve. Hey, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk to you guys about triathlon, which has been a passion of mine for many, many years, decades, we can say. And, you know, I can certainly date myself, but... I appreciate the opportunity to share my story and hopefully we can inspire some people, uh, you know, with what we're going to be talking about. Perfect. So let's, let's, uh, let's dive right into your story here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I'm originally from Oklahoma. Um, I was born in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it was a very auspicious start to my life. Um, I've always been an athletic guy. Uh, I've played, you know, many different sports going through high school um, never really had a lot of coaching at most everything I've always done has been pretty much on my own. And, uh, the real crux of my story starts when I was 20 years old, I was uh, just out of my first year of college at the university of Oklahoma. I was cutting firewood to make a little bit of extra money. And the tree that we were cutting on this one particular day on November 30th, 1982, happened to split in half. And it's what they call a barber chair in lumberjack terms. It's one of the most dangerous things that can happen when you're cutting fire or cutting trees, rather. As we're cutting on this tree, it had formed a T. And I looked up at this and thinking... And you're, you're out there by yourself, right? No, I actually had a friend. Oh, oh that's right. He was, I'm sorry. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Had, had I not had... It, had it been by myself, I, there's no way I would I'd be yeah. here. It, it, it was just that kind of situation. But... My friend was cutting on the tree and I had basically stepped back and just kind of waiting for the tree to fall. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. It was just one of those situations. We were so green. And I looked up at the tree thinking, man, how bad would it be if somebody got caught in between the two halves? And literally, the next thing I knew, I was waking up, stars kind of flashing around my head. It took me a few minutes to really kind of gain my bearings, but ultimately what I discovered is that these two halves, if the tree was massive, it was beyond 30 inches across, and I had a half to my front, I had a half to my back, it had crushed my face, I was spitting teeth out, my left wrist was crushed, I had realized that I was pinned between this tree and I tried to press it open with both my hands and that's when I felt the bones crushing my left wrist. And then I look down and I see my legs and this tree's laying on my legs. I couldn't feel it. And it was at that moment that I realized I was paralyzed below the waist. Rather than freak out, I worked with my friend to kind of work things through. He started trying to cut me out. The chainsaw got stuck. He tried to go for help. And my grandfather's truck was parked nearby. The truck flooded. He ended up having to run approximately three miles before he found help. And meanwhile, I'm stuck in this tree in the middle of a wheat field and literally in the middle of nowhere. So they took about two hours to get me cut out, to get me to the hospital. That's when we found out that I had, in addition to all the other injuries, I had a bruised heart. I had three crushed vertebrae and I was paralyzed and they told me that I would never walk again. But being the resilient 20-year-old that I was, I vowed that very day that I was going to walk out of the hospital. And after many grueling surgeries, three and a half months laying flat on my back, I took four exhaustive steps out the front door of the hospital. So I kept my word. Another three and a half months in a rehab center, 
And when I got to go out of the rehab center, I was still barely shuffling across the floor. I was in excruciating pain on a daily basis. I was still using aids to walk and I was basically left on my own to do my own rehab. But as I had alluded to before, I was always the kind of guy that really never had a coach. I had always pushed myself and I just continued to push and push and push for the next three years. I ended up running a 10K in 85. I had, you know, relearned to walk. I learned to run, did that first 10K. It was a, a run walk, but I finished. And it was shortly after that, that I was watching TV. And this moment is so fortuitous because had I missed the opportunity to see this, triathlon would probably never be in my life. But it was a 1985 Hawaiian Ironman, and they were replaying Julie Moss crawling across the finish line. One of the most iconic things in sport. And I could so relate to everything she was going through, giving all her effort to reach that finish line, which was her goal for the day. She pushed and pushed pushed. And it was at that moment that I thought, hey, whimsically, I'm going to do a triathlon. But I didn't know what a triathlon was other than you know what I was just kind of witnessing. There were no replays. There was no internet that I could go to to watch this and get information. I just had this short bit of information to work with. But I found a, a triathlon in uh, Triathlete Magazine or Triathlon Magazine at the time. And it was in Oklahoma. I paid my entry fee and I started training. I had about six or seven months to train. And the only thing that I had been able to do at that point is the run, uh, the 10K. So I bought a cheap bike from a pawn shop. I started working towards my lifeguard certification so that I could have access to a pool full time because Oklahoma in the wintertime, there's no outdoor swimming. <laughs> it's way too cold. And so I basically just pushed through all this adversity. And in June of 1986, I show up at this triathlon completely unprepared. I knew nothing about nutrition, nothing about hydration. I mean, this was you know, there was no sports nutrition back then. And I think about the only thing we had was Gatorade, bananas, oranges, and, you know, maybe a bit of honey and, you know, a few other things here and there. But I, I towed the line. I was not going to give up. At the end of the day, I came in dead last. But what I came to find out 35 years later, uh, maybe 2021, 20, I was doing research on paratriathlon. And I discovered that I was the second disabled athlete ever to have done a triathlon and the first with a spinal cord injury, which made me a, hit, uh, a pioneer in the sport of paratriathlon and basically cemented my place in the sport uh, history. Since then, I've had the opportunity to talk with Scott Tinley, that was one of my idols way back in the day. And I want to be on the, I think there's a, a website called trihistory.com. They're rewriting the history of the sport, which, you know, is really kind of loosely put together when you think about it, because it was such a, a strung together sport in the beginning for many, many years. Nobody really thought to scribe this down, but they're starting to go back and rewrite it because it's such an important part of the sport. And it really started, uh, you know, at the time it was the most difficult sport on the planet. And it's important to capture that history. And I'm just really thankful and, and certainly humbled by you know, the opportunity to have my place in it. Yeah, it's amazing. Very cool. Thank you. Um, I'd, I'd like to go back to, you know, the accident itself, even like 
I mean, a long time ago, obviously, I'm not sure if you remember, and, you know, I'm sure your, your mindset or what was going on during the actual accident, but, like, when you're out there alone by yourself, stuck in a tree, like, what's going through your mind? You know, I was in and out of consciousness, yeah. um, and so I did a lot of praying. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm a pretty religious guy, and uh, my faith, I think, is what got me through this. I don't think it's what gave me the miracle that allowed me to walk again, but, um, I, you know, I just kept thinking they're going to be back, and, and honestly, it was a beautiful fall day in Oklahoma. And I think the majority of the time I just spent myself looking because it was a nice cool breeze. It was unseasonably warm and the leaves were blowing and, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere. So it's just deathly quiet with the exception of leaves rattling and birds chirping. And I just kind of took the nature in um, and absorbed the moment. But I didn't freak out. I, I never cried. I never said, why me? And, you know, I never I'm just not that kind of guy. Um, you know, I'm a little more stoic than that. So. I guess so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that's really incredible. Yeah, um, wow. wow. Um, okay, so like when reality set in, like I very fast, and I think it's your mindset. Obviously, that is a huge reason you had the success you had. So, like, just tell us more about what was giving you the motivation, you know, to really to like right off the get go say, you know, I'm going to walk out of here and and do those kind of things. Well, when they told me that, I you know I knew nothing about paralysis it, this was like just an eye-opener for me to you know there were no disabled heroes on tv back then it was you didn't see a lot of people this was way before the ada and i just as a 20 year old you know just graduated from college i was very athletic it was just one of those things that hey i gotta be able to get in my car and go cruising because cruising was still a big thing back then and you know I got to be able to walk for the girls, man. I mean, you know, I was 20. I had no girlfriend and and nothing along that line. So I had my priorities a little bit mixed up, but probably in a good way because it just forced me to not give up on that mindset and always focused on the fact that I was going to walk out. And, you know, I pushed through my therapy. I, I think it was maybe eight weeks before they actually started even moving my legs. And it was probably three to four weeks before I really started to get any inkling of feeling back. And when I started getting feeling, it was just, it was excruciating. Um, I was on morphine and it was all, you know, I am that just kind of shove a needle in my thigh. And a couple minutes later I was zonked out, but I used that to my advantage when I started doing physical therapy, because I knew that when they were going to come into my room and do the physical therapy. So I would time my shot to right before, so when my therapist got there, I could really push myself through the pain that they were going to be uh, putting me through. And, you know, I've got such a high tolerance to pain as do probably most triathletes. Uh, I think that's kind of what makes us unique as athletes, as individuals. And it just allowed me to to realize that pain was never going to last forever. I could push through it to a point and, and then even beyond it, in certain circumstances. Very cool. So when you're going to physical therapy, I mean, did you see improvements right away or was it kind of a long-term process uh, of seeing improvements? Okay. Yeah. I mean, at first they came in, they would cradle my leg and they would lift it maybe five degrees up off the bed. And I, you know, when you lay flat for so long, all those tendons are going to tighten up. All my muscles atrophied. I went from 150 pounds down to 90. Yeah, I saw that. I was so, going to highlight that. I remember you mentioning that in your video there. We'll yeah. we'll put a link to the video that uh, you shared with us prior to the show. 
uh, but that 80 pounds, that's, man. Yeah, I, I was my mom tells me that as I was laying in the bed and I had a sheet covering me uh, on my press, my hips, um, it would just drape down, just kind of droop down uh, and towards my bladder. I'd lost so much weight. And that was all because I had my mouth wired shut. My When the tree hit my face, it fractured my frontal bone. It fractured the roof of my mouth. It fractured my mandible. So all that had to be wired together. And I didn't eat solid food for probably eight weeks. It was all through a tube. Crazy. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm sure there was, again, kind of different, uh, you're going through different processes uh both you know physically and mentally through that but like you know was it like every day you were like i'm gonna beat this i'm gonna beat this or was there definitely you know setback i'm sure there was kind of setbacks a little bit but um like tell me i don't know and more insight again into the kind of the mindset of like what you were doing and like did you how you kind of plan for that or anything you have more on that well, when they uh, when I finally got the opportunity to start moving and do, doing physical therapy, they came in and they put a trapeze over the bed, and I used that to my advantage. I started doing chin ups as I could, really? uh, and you know, kind of working the upper body. And because I had always, and I don't want to say I was vain, but you know, as a young twenty year old guy, you're looking in the mirror and you're looking at the bicep, checking out the delts and the lats, and so I, I wanted to get all that muscle back. Um, you know, I worked through that. And then when I got out, it was more of the, uh, you know, I just, I knew I had to get back to where I was. I, I was not going to be intent on being this disabled person that couldn't do for himself. I was always going to be able to push myself, uh, and be independent. And again, triathlon kind of was the perfect sport because it's an individual sport. And this was an individual process. Nobody could push me through this. It was all, it was all me for the most part. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, so you, I'll were go you, ahead. Or, go ahead, Elliot. So you said your first triathlon was 1986. Did you have, I mean, did you know of any paratriathletes at that time? Because I mean, over the years, there's been quite a few that have been on, on like the Kona broadcast and all that. I mean, do you, yeah. Do you keep in communication with them or do you have you talked to any of those guys or women? There was one guy and he was actually uh, featured in that 1985 broadcast of the uh, Hawaiian Ironman Triathlon, Pat Griscus. He was the first known paratriathlete. He was an amputee. Uh, Pat had done several Ironmans up to that point. I didn't know him and he actually ended up uh, passing away in a car accident. During, it was a training accident. He got hit by a car uh, the very next year, I believe it was, in training for 87 Ironman, um, which was super sad. So that, you know, makes me the oldest surviving original paratriathlete. But after I did it, there was this huge gap. And, you know, as I said before, there were no, this was before there were, there was a spotlight on disabled athletes. So I had to blaze my own trail if I was going to do anything. And, and what I came out with from a, a deficit standpoint after the accident was I had foot drop on my left leg and I had constant sciatic nerve pain, uh, which was very debilitating. And, you know, I was on a slew of medications, ended up eventually just taking ibuprofen um, and uh, Excedrin for my pain and just kind of having to deal with it. But what I found was that exercise really helped me through that process and helped me deal with it. It was the endorphins. I didn't know it at the time, but they were, it was my healing. Um, 
but the only other disabled athlete that I knew of, and I, and I didn't know Pat until years later, uh, or, you know, about Pat, but there was a guy named Terry Fox, who was a Canadian, was an amputee. Um, he had vowed to run across Canada doing a marathon a day. He almost made it. I mean, he started out and I, he, he, uh, uh, his cancer came back, went in the hospital, but this guy was, they made a movie about him and I ended up seeing that, but it was hard for me to relate to him because I had all my extremities, though they didn't work exactly like they used to, uh, you know, I wasn't missing one. So it was, again, it was kind of hard to identify with that, but he was a, a an inspiration to me. And he was really the only one that I really knew of uh, at the time. So, yeah, there's a ESPN 30 for 30 on him, right? That's, that's a really, really good watch uh, for yeah. sure. Sorry, my golden boot. Wow, crazy. <laughs> That's all right. All good. Uh, all right. So, even just so, did you have like, is there any other triathletes or anybody else that you were um, talked to like prior to that race or anything like that? Like, what what did your training look like? <laughs> it was well. It was um, kind of just pieced together, and you know, back then, even bike racing was not that popular in the U.S. So it was hard to find anybody. I knew one guy in high school that raced bikes. And I went out to a race one time with him and a group of people. He invited us out to go watch. And what happened was we saw him take off. Hey, buddy. And it was like an hour and a half later, he came back. And I'm like, this is the most boring sport in the world. I mean, from a spectator standpoint. <laughs> but what I eventually discovered was it's the most exciting sport when you're actually on the bike and you're pushing yourself through the pack. So um but no from triathlon standpoint there were no 70.3 stickers on cars where you could self-identify with somebody <laughs> and it was such a, a niche sport back then there you know there may have been a couple hundred people in oklahoma that were actually doing triathlon i think 181 showed up at the triathlon that i was at which you know numbers are still relatively low but they're even lower for paratriathletes which is the main reason that I'm, you know, out telling my story is to motivate other people that have disabilities that, hey, look, paratriathlon was at one time one of the fastest growing sports in the world. And now that it's a, a Paralympic sport and USA Triathlon has got a big push towards, uh, you know, getting the athletes. They're now on the same level as the pros or the elite uh, Olympic athletes. Whereas before we were lagging behind, but they realized that just because we're disabled does not mean we're not capable of putting out a performance. And in most cases, when you consider the backstory, it's probably some of the more incredible stories that you're going to hear as far as triathletes go, pushing themselves past that uh, adversity that they were dealing with initially. Yeah. Uh, totally. Yeah. 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 No doubt on that, I don't think. Um, cool. Yeah, so <laughs> my son well, walked that- in. This was my, he did his first triathlon when he was, he was six. I'm trying to oh. get him back into the sport, but uh, he's, <laughs> he's a bit reluctant. <laughs> All right. But he's an OU boy as well. looks like. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. We had a horrible <laughs> season this year, but I still <laughs> am loyal to my alma mater. <laughs> That's great. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, awesome. So, and then, so how many triathlons did you do like in, uh, when you first got going there? I mean, you did one that, that year, did you do like, did you continue on for a while with that? I know you switched over to cycling kind of primarily after a while. Tell us more about your career that way. 
Yeah, I did triathlon till about the early 90s, maybe 90, 91, I think was my last year. And then I moved over into cycling primarily. But I did another one later that summer. I, I moved back to OU and started school again that year. And it was a, a triathlon in Norman. And ironically enough, Lance Armstrong uh, ended oh, up getting right. yeah. that triathlon. And he ended up winning that triathlon. Um, I forget. It was last year. Um he was doing a live cycling event and, you know, we were all hooked up on our Wahoo and uh, I chimed in and I said, Hey Lance, you know, we competed together back in 86. And I say compete because he blew the weight, blew the crowd away. He was 16 years old and he was just this phenom. It was incredible. Uh, and of course I, I never finished last again in triathlon. I always started kind of bumping myself up, but I, I never won my age group. I was always going to be a little bit behind. Um, but I started to excel in cycling and, and I did start winning in cycling when I, when I did transition. Uh, so I found that I was better at that sport for, you know, whatever particular reason, but I, did, I can't remember the, the exact number. I wouldn't really keep in track back then. Right. I didn't think that I was, you know, putting my mark in the, in the annals of triathlon history. So the only thing that I really kept was I've got a, a cycling cap that was a triathlon cap that I bought, you know, years ago, and a couple of headbands and, uh, I do have the results from that very first race. I was able to keep up with that. But after that, I was moving around so much with college, changing apartments every six months to get a better deal. And I couldn't keep up with my mail. So all that stuff got lost. So, yeah. But so, you know, physically, once you kind of completed your rehab, I mean, you mentioned a couple like limitations there, but like, was there any of the three disciplines that really kind of you feel like you were limited over the others or like, um, where were you at physically with all that? Yeah, it was running was probably the most difficult, but, you know, I, I love to run and, and I still wish that I was a, a, able to run at this point in time. But with foot drop, the problem that you have is you have to lift your leg higher because your foot's going to drop, it's going to drag. I felt, you know, on many different occasions, that was always a hazard. The more tired you are running, you know, getting from uh, cycling to running, doing circles to doing strides is it's pretty foreign to your legs. And when you have foot drop, it's even more of an issue. So starting out after transition was always difficult, but I would always reach my stride. Um, but that was always one that, that gave me the most, uh, the most difficulty. I was always a good swimmer. Uh, I could always put a good swim together and, and I was a lifeguard after that for many years. So, um, you know, those two disciplines, and this was before you could do a, a an aqua bike. Otherwise I probably would have transitioned to that. So, but so with your with your running, so is it like is it very eminent that you're that you have that limitation like visual visual that you can see that or is it more just like internal that you know it's limiting you there? Yeah, you can see it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. okay, my foot would always flop. It would it would hit and slap, and that okay. causes you know when you're running, you know when you're slapping your foot, it, it's it's going to create a lot of blisters, and I mean there was just a lot of difficulties that came with that, but. I never let it stop me. I mean, I, if, if I would have come out of a race completely blistered and, and, you know, foot just killing me, sciatic nerve, killing me back, killing me, I would have given myself 24 hours to recover. And I would have been at the a starting line the next day if I would have needed it. So uh, that was just the kind of individual that I was. And I, I took to the sport because for some reason I knew after what I'd been through to be able to do a triathlon, which was, again the toughest most grueling sport on the planet at the time 
it was a badge of honor for me, but I never really went out there, you know, singing my praises back then. I just kind of humbly took took it in and I shared my story with a few friends here and there. And then my family certainly knew what I had done, but nobody really thought, hey, you've really got something going here with your backstory and, you know, being able to do this sport until now. And, you know, I've been encouraged over the years. I've been writing a book for my kids, mainly for the last few years. But now I'm encouraged to put it out to the world and, you know, share my story because it not one person I've shared it with has said, oh, that's OK. They're all like, wow. <laughs> right, right. And, and I don't share it, you know, for that type of reaction as much as I've just come to realize that it's a pretty when you think about it. I mean, that, there's a lot of great stories now, you know, as they start talking about the para athletes and a lot of people coming back from war, missing limbs and with, you know, their severe injuries. But back then, there just weren't that wasn't that kind of story. So it, yeah. it's deserving of being told now. I'm saying, but I'm well, I think it. it's your positive, your positivity too. I mean, you never were. Doesn't seem like you were ever very negative about it. And I think it's a good message to send out to everyone is that, I mean, life's gonna throw you a lot of obstacles, and some of it's some of it really sucks, and you just you have to deal with it and like be positive about it i mean if you're negative about it it's probably not going to do you any good so i think it's a good message to spread to everyone yeah negativity the way i look at it is negativity is a cancer that will just proliferate positivity is much harder to come by but if you are positive and i i've always been the glass half full kind of guy um and you know i've never really seen a purpose for dwelling on your adversity or your shortcomings in fact i try to learn more from the worst races i've done i've learned the most uh, the best races i look back going it was just a great performance that came together and there's a lot to learn from the build-up but not necessarily from the race and so I, I you know i always tell my kids when you make a mistake look at it twice as hard because that's where you're really going to get the, the good lessons in life that's a good one absolutely yeah, you just mentioned, you know, your friends and your uh, your family a little bit, but like what was what were the outside source and like other people saying when you said I'm gonna do a triathlon and you know these these kind of things when you're first getting into it? Well, when I did that first one, I didn't tell anybody. Uh, and the the reasoning behind it was I didn't want anybody saying, Oh, you shouldn't do that, or or why are you doing that, or don't hurt yourself. I wanted nothing to deter me from that goal of being a triathlete. And I wanted to be a triathlete so bad because it just seemed like, again, that such a tough sport. And if I could do that, I could say to myself that, you know, Hey, I've returned from everything that I'd been through. I'm back baby. And you know, there's nothing's going to stop me. And, and to be honest, after that first triathlon or actually before it, I was maybe a C and a D student. But after that triathlon, it changed my outlook on life. It changed my focus on my work ethic, on how I saw myself, how I thought about myself. And every semester that passed after that, I was on the Dean's Honor Roll. And I, it, I attribute it all to triathlon because you just gain so much self-confidence from going from the start of that race to the end of that race. And when you think about how so few people want to do a triathlon because they think, oh, my gosh, it's so much you got to swim and you got to bike and you got to run and it's this distance and i'm like well, you, you can't look at it that way you have to look at it and, you know it's the achievement and you can get through that achievement so 
Uh, but that's why people jump across the finish line at Kona. You know, pretty much any triathlon or Ironman for that matter, they, they, they find that energy at the end because they know they just changed their life. Right. All right. That's such a good point. I mean, you know, fully enabled or, you know, disabled, right? It, it is, I don't think any coincidence for the people that do triathlons that are often successful in other aspects of their life, right? It's because they've developed that, like you said, the work ethic and the mindset that, that carries over to far more than triathlon. So, you know, absolutely. That makes sense there. So yeah. very cool. Um, I'm interested to hear even, you know, your, your days in, in the cycling world. And like, you know, like you said, it wasn't all that popular when you first kind of got into it here and it's, it's grown. Um, um, but tell us, tell us a little bit more about your, your cycling experience. Yeah. So I, uh, I rode my crappy pawn shop bike for a couple of years. It was an oversized Raleigh. It was maybe a 56 CM and I ride a 52. So I had the, <laughs> I had the seat post like jammed all the way down. It looks like a typical movie biker. Right. <laughs> and I mean, if I, I don't have me any pictures of me riding. I, I wish I do because it would be so funny. Now I've got this seat post jacked all the way out, but no, I started, um, I bought a, uh, it was a Torpado and it was in 80, I think it was 87. Uh, Torpado was an Italian brand. It was actually a pretty well-known brand back in the day, you know, chrome molly down to friction shifting. And there was nothing arrow on this bike. You had the big brake cables coming up over the top of the handlebars. Um, but that bike kind of, it, it allowed me to excel because it was the right size and, and I was fit to the bike. And so uh, I rode that to 88. In 88, I got the a newspaper at college, and there was an advertisement for uh, boys camp in New England, in Lenox, Massachusetts. And so I had nothing to do for the summer, and so I applied, and I became a cycling instructor on the East Coast, and I got to ride my bike every day. I got paid. I felt like a pro, even though I you know, walked away at the end of the summer with like 1500 bucks. It was like a mountain of gold to me. Um, but I came back from that experience because Oklahoma is, we're hilly, but we don't have any mountains. And you go to Lenox, Mass, and you've got some nice big hills and mountains to climb. And so I really got to, to become a climber. And I'm not a big guy. I'm 5'7". Back then, I maybe was 135, 140 pounds. I was built like a climber, and I excelled in the mountains. So I took to that. Uh, there was a guy there that came from Arizona. His name was Joe Armstrong and Joe had these monster thighs. He was like a true cyclist. And he introduced me that summer to uh, the Tour de France. We got to see Greg LeMond uh, performing the Tour de France as we were at camp. We would always take a break during the, uh, the, the weekend when they would play it on the, I think it was ABC where they used to play the Tour de France on Saturdays and Sundays. And so I really became immersed in the cycling and, and, you know, Greg Lamont, I think he won that year and um, he became one of my heroes. And after that, I, I did more cycling than I did triathlon, but I kept doing both until 90. And when I graduated college and that's when I just found that there was such a time constraint for training for three sports. I just picked one over the other. And the minute I did, I started winning at cycling. I started uh, winning my age group against, you know, all the able-bodied athletes. And again, that was a badge of honor for me personally, but I wasn't out there going, hey, look, you know, look what I did. I wasn't contacting the papers or anything like that. But uh, I've had a love of cycling ever since then. And, and I've ridden pretty much off and on since 80, 
86, I think. Uh, I've, I've got three bikes now. I got a, a gravel, I got a TT and I've got a, a Roubaix, a specialized Roubaix road bike. And my wife says I got way too many bikes, but you can never have enough bikes. I'm still missing a mountain bike. That's <laughs> true. <Yeah>. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't think you have enough. <laughs> no, well, right, and, yeah. and then there's the wheels. I mean, I got wheels everywhere. So <laughs> we, we can talk to her for you if you need us to. Huh? Yep. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> it's uh, it was, cycling is such an addiction, and uh, I think I think it was on one of your shows that I was listening to, or somebody they were talking about um, losing weight instead of you know buying the latest carbon this or that. It's just like you know what, you can lose so much more weight and have so much less drag and so much weight you're carrying up a hill versus losing 20 grams by buying a different uh you know set of brake handles or whatever it's just but the brake handles crazy. are so cool yeah, <laughs> no, <right. laughs> yeah it's still still one of my favorite emails i think i was on the bicycle magazine's newsletter or whatever and uh they the big punchline was want to learn how to ride up hills faster and you had to click on the link to find it and so you clicked on it and it brought you to the website and it said Lose weight. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, um, but uh, you know, it's so true. But uh, yeah, I mean, how about even just like the, you know, you alluded to it some, you know, the technology on the bikes today. Like, what do you think of like, <laughs> you know, oh. your original, your original pawn shop <laughs> bike versus, you know, what we have today and like the evolution of all that. Yeah. Well, there were, you know, helmets were only required during races. And, you know, for the most part, I, I never wore a helmet. And I can remember back in the late 80s, uh, I had a Sony Walkman and I had my earphones on. I had the Sony Walkman stuck in the back of my shorts and I'm cruising down the road. It's probably the most dangerous thing in the world. You know, I couldn't hear traffic. It was just crazy. But, yeah, it's it's changed a lot. I mean, uh, in fact, I, my brother-in-law rides and he came over the other day and he picked up my Roubaix, which is super light carbon. And he's like, oh my God, that's light. And he's got a, a, an old aluminum, which, you know, aluminum was state of the art back in the day as well. And it, it went from, you know, a heavy chrome molly to aluminum to carbon fiber. And man, I tell you what, now they're just, they're so much faster. They're so more responsive and, you know, everything is arrow. I mean, you don't see brake cables anymore. Everything is just all nice and neat, but I miss, I, I really wish that, that I had that bike, that Torpado. I traded it in uh, to get another bike. And I think it was a Cannondale R400 back in the day. Um, aluminum, you know, and Cannondale was, was pretty much state of the art of the light bikes way back when, but uh yeah, they've changed so much. And I think almost to the point where it's kind of crazy, all the light gadgets that you can buy when you just need to go back to the basics and lose a little bit of weight by riding the bike more and eating healthier, you know, and, and just kind of looking at your diet. You hear that, Colin? That's totally the wrong <laughs> method, <Jeff. laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, yeah, if you need some recommendations there you can go back to our uh one of our last interviews with with scott uh from uh fuel land well, yeah that's what i listen to that yeah okay cool yeah i think the biggest change that i've seen you know in addition to the bikes is nutrition Absolutely. the the main thing that that i discovered and it was probably around 87 88 was a drink called exceed and 
I actually liked it. There's a lot of people that said it tasted like hot piss, you know, and, but I, I never minded it. It always, it gave me that boost. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I remember just training strictly with water during races. It was water. I, there was no goo. I mean, there was just nothing like that back yeah. then. You, that's where, why cliff bar came about because the, right. he did his own, you know, he had to, figure all that out. Now it's a, a science all its own. So that, that Big came uh, full circle. And I think that made the biggest difference in watching the times drop, um, you know, in races, watching hundred percent. It has to, has to be, yeah. yeah. You know, the tech, sure. The technology is definitely helping. There's no doubt about that. The bikes and aerodynamics and things like that, but I just can't even fathom, you know, how these <laughs> you guys did these races was, just on water <laughs> and things like that, you know? It was tough. Trust me, it was bunk city. But, you know, the younger you are, the more you're able to endure that. The older you get, the more nutrition really makes a huge difference. Because I can tell coming out of a swim now or, or you know, midway in the bike, it's just like, oh, God, I didn't, I didn't fuel properly. I, I didn't hydrate properly. And I think the best advice somebody gave me is drink before you get thirsty. Because by the time you're thirsty, it's way too late. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah, cool. So you're still active on the bike and everything like that? Yeah, probably not as much as I would like. Um, you know, I got I got good days and I got bad days now. I've got a disease called arachnoiditis, which is slowly paralyzing me below the waist. It's very painful. Um, years ago, maybe 2016, I was on a bunch of pills that they were throwing at me, trying to get the pain under control. And finally, I just took a stand saying, you know, that I'm not going to do any more pills opioids are addictive and and this was back kind of during the height of uh the craze the of just people you know just delving out pills left and right and i didn't want to get caught up in being addicted to a pill that they were now going to control so tightly that if you really needed it or you had to have it because you know your body was craving it uh it was going to really cause you problems so i took a stand i got off the pills it was probably the most difficult thing i did because i again me being me, I did it against medical advice and I did it on my own. Um, and even though I took the pills as prescribed, uh, your body still gets addicted to them, you know, from day to day basis. And what I discovered during taking the, taking my time away from the pills was that the pills were actually causing the majority of the pain that I was in. It was almost like a micro withdrawal from dose to dose. And the more, the longer that I was on it, and I was on pills for years, you know, way back in the day. Sure. Uh, but the longer you're on it, the more your body just becomes dependent. Even though I didn't have the mindset of the, you know, of being addicted, I did have the, the my body did desire the medication and right. it was making pain and forcing me to take it. Uh, but once I got off that and I jumped back on the bike, man, it was just, it was a whole new lease on life. I'm not near as fast. And, you know, times drop as you get older, minds drop dramatically, which is, you know, I, I can still think back to when I'm on my pro molly and I'm scooping at 22 miles an hour, which was a pretty good thing for me back then over the course of the 25 mile ride. And now, you know, I'm, I'm struggling to make 15, <laughs> but I'm making the distance and, you know, I'm keeping up with a lot of my peers. We're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I tell you what, bike, if, if people want to see the world from a different perspective, 
feel great and really feel good about themselves, jump on a bike. I don't think there's anything better because it can take you so far. And it was such a, a, a game changer for modern technology from a travel standpoint when it was first invented. You know, I mean, that we had a horse and then we had the bike and you could go so many further places, so much faster on the bike. It was so revolutionary and, and still is to this day. Good point. No doubt. Yeah. Very cool. So what, where do you see yourself? You know, you, you mentioned you're writing the book. That's super cool. Um, what, how else do you see yourself kind of helping, um, you know, society, I'll say here and, um, better ways to, to embrace, you know, what you've overcome and, and help to spread the word on that. Well, a couple of different ways. I'm, uh, I'm an ambassador for USA triathlon foundation and I've been in discussions or had a lot of conversations with uh, the hierarchy of USA Triathlon about trying to tell my story um, because it is part of the history and, you know, it can motivate, even though there are equally and if not better motivational stories nowadays, uh, it's good to know that, you know, I had no example, but I wanted this goal of being a triathlete. So I pushed myself with it. So I'm trying to get back to the sport with respect to that. I'm actually actively considering getting my coaching license for paratriathlon. I think that, you know, my place in, in history with my knowledge, it, I, I might not have the most up-to-date knowledge on the sport as it is right now, but from a historical perspective, a, a lot of that really means a lot uh, to be able to talk about that and, and show how far the sports come because people don't know how good they have it now. <laughs> Trust oh, me. Yeah. It is so much better now than it, than it was. And I'm kind of on a mission with, um, and I'm going to work with USA Triathlon on this, still on the local level, you go to the uh, sign up on the website and you go to the drop down and there's nothing for a paratriathlete. I mean, you get your age groupers and I'm looking for a PT1, PT2 or PT3 and it's not there. And I think that's an impediment to people that may want to do it. They may be out there looking and they don't see it. Not so an option for them. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, the first race that I did back, which was this last spring, I actually had to call them and say, hey, I'm a disabled athlete and, you know, these are my needs. And they said, you have to bring somebody to help you out of the pool and help get you to your, you know, transition area. And I'm like, that's just kind of wrong. I mean, you know, there should be, I, I wasn't looking for anything special as much as I just wanted to be, to participate and compete. So I want to help change that and drive the direction of the sport into it, it, inclusive um, access for all these athletes. And um, in addition, I'm moving into motivational speaking now. I'm trying to tell my story. Uh, I'm, you know, working on getting my, uh, table together and, and all my slides and starting on the local level, hopefully I'm going to, you know, grow and, and be on a larger stage at some point because I do not to pat myself on the back, but I do have a good story and I've held it close to heart for so long. It, it's time to be told. And, you know, with COVID and everything that's happening around the world now, we need these great motivational stories. And with the Paralympics and the Olympics coming up, you know, in Paris in 2024, I'm hoping that, you know, maybe I can play a role with that, you know, telling my story and, and motivating some of these younger athletes that weren't even born, you know, when I even stopped doing the sports. So, um, you know, and, and, you know, we all need heroes. I still 
my heroes are Mark Allen, Scott Tinley, Dave Scott, Paul Newby Frazier, the Pontius Twins. I mean, you know, Mike Pig. I can go way back to all those guys, and I still look up to them, even though they're they're older and not as fast. So, yeah, very cool. Yeah, that was going to be my question. That was going to be my question to you. So, you, I mean, you you got into triathlon the year I was born. So, I mean, besides <laughs> besides like the bike developments and nutrition, what we talked about. I mean, what what are the major changes you've seen in the sport? Oh, just growth. I mean, you know, back then you would, it was the Bud Light series and, you know, they were promoting it. And I always thought that was ironic, you know, as a, as an athlete, you're looking for calories, you know, from a recovery standpoint, they're shoving a light beer when you need something caloric. <laughs> uh, and also the, you know, the nutrition, of course, we were all about, it was all pasta back then. And things have transitioned to a lot of protein now versus, you know, uh, the, the gluten is bad. So people are walking away from that. But I still I still love a hot, steamy bowl of pasta, you know, and that's just from back in the day. And all the the uh, the coaching, I mean, there was no coaching back then. You just pretty much had to you know, open up the magazine. You read what, you know, the pros were doing. but And figure I, it out yourself. <laughs> pretty, yeah, much. pretty much. Yeah. I, I couldn't do that. I, I just kind of had to formulate it on my own. And uh, I never did an Ironman. I always aspired to wanting to go and, and be one of those hardship entries into the to the Ironman and make it to Kona. But I just never had the time. I didn't have the coaching. I certainly didn't have the money as a poor college student. I put myself through college. But, um, you know, just the growth of the sport really didn't take off until and the late or the early 2000s, I think, maybe mid-2000s. It really, we saw, I think that that's when triathlon uh, finally hit the Olympic stage and we finally got the recognition versus a one-weekend spot on ABC ABC Wide World Sports. And you couldn't, you know, there was no internet to go to to look at it up on on YouTube. You either were sitting in front of the TV on Saturday when they played that or you missed it because there was no replays. Yeah. One other little more specific uh, question I had for you as far as it goes with, with paratriathlon and the categories and things. Do you think we have that right right now as far as how we categorize things? Um, I think there's a bit of disparity. <laughs> I When I first started um, getting back into cycling after I'd taken a little bit of a break, and this was around 2012 or 2013, there was a guy – I'm going to use cycling as kind of a, an example on this because I, I knew this better back then, but it applies to triathlon. He was a, a C3, which basically is you've got one limb that has got an issue or you've got, um, you know, both limbs with smaller issues, but that's a, a C3. And slowly he's gone from a C2 to a C1, which is the the most extreme disabled category but the irony is that he's gotten faster. So how does that happen? And if it happens so that we can position him in the Olympics to go win medals, you know, uh, I tend to question that. Um, gotcha. Because, yeah. you know, I'm still classified as a, a C3, um, but I'm more of a, a C2 or a C1 in cycling, and I'm probably a PT2 in paratriathlon. But classification is so hard to come by subjective um, kind of yeah it, it's very subjective and yeah. it's it's location based like uh i think 
there's not that many people that are out there to qualify you standardize it across the nation. So it's, it's very difficult. You have to show up to one of the major races, which, you know, is either going to be in California, it's going to be in Florida, or it may be down in Texas somewhere or, you know, international to be classified because that's where the classifiers show up. So that's another disparity for athletes that want to get out there and compete is, well, what category do I fit in? And if you show up and again, you show up and and you compete, but there's no medal for your category. They didn't even contemplate that. It's, you know, you get your finishers medal, but even though you're specialized, there's no first, second or third in in your classification or even from paratriathlete as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully you can help grow that and improve that here. Well, it's it's definitely uh, something like we have a new CEO of USAT, so right. yeah. I'm hoping to connect with her and, and give her my two cents. And, and I, I don't want to be hard on the sport, but, you know, to grow it, you have to change it. And I think she understands that more than most. And, and she's also a, uh, a road, uh, a, a blazer, you know, blazing a trail of her own, being the first female CEO. So that's right. big. And maybe yeah. we can identify um, that, you know, there's still some big changes that need to happen in this area of the sport, because I think once we level the ground and we level it worldwide, I think there are probably still countries that are going to fudge on the, the classification for their benefit, um, because, as you said, it is subjective and you can work that in there if you got the right medical documentation and, you know, the right analysis during that classification process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like everything, right? Nothing's perfect, but I was curious to get somebody that's experienced as much as you have here. What your kind of feedback is in there? Because, uh, um, you know, but uh, <laughs> yeah, good, good. Well, that's that's always a good thing. So, very cool. All right. Well, yeah, like we said, we'll put your your video in there and some uh, follow up for you. Uh, so people have want to reach out to Steve or. Uh, have anything else to, to share we can um, definitely do that here but uh, we really appreciate you coming on here and sharing your story with us yeah thank you thank Steve. You very much thank you i really appreciate it and listen to, to an old tri dog <laughs> yeah <laughs> old school i mean there's it's nothing awesome. like, awesome. like going back in the day you know and talking about all that old stuff because uh pretty soon it'll be lost you know and, and you won't have all that to, to talk about and see how far we've come with the sport which is a long long way i mean yeah you know, what, 78, 79 up to now and all the changes and people are making, you know, not everybody's making a lot of money. Even I think in, in your uh, interview with Greg, you were talking about how it's hard to go pro because, I mean, if you got all the endorsements and you're the, you know, the top finisher, you know, hitting the podium every time you hit a race, you're going to make some coin. But it's all those other people that are trying that that can't make it. And, and who are we missing? You know what I mean? Who are we not able to fund that could really get out there and make a difference? That's that's kind of the uh, the sad part to it. I think we need more corporate uh, involvement uh, besides just the the companies that are supporting it from a, a nutritional or an equipment standpoint. Yeah, I agree. I think that would be very very beneficial to the sport, no doubt. Yeah, but it's still better than it was. I mean, yeah. yeah. You know, couple hundred dollars way back in the day versus several thousand (laughs) (laughs) yeah pto is doing good things for sure here i think so yeah Yeah. awesome all right well thanks again for being on here um everybody have a good one here and we will talk soon
Thank you.